All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's uh, bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Our Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word in this record, this remarkable record in the four Gospels of our Lord's life on this earth, his ministry, the way he came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, we are thankful that we have an accurate record that we can come to understand and that we can study and we can reflect upon and that God the Holy Spirit uses to to challenge us, to mature us, to teach us about so many different vital truths in your word, that that which you have taught us may live within us, and that as a result of believing in Christ and then believing in these things, that we can have a rich, full, abundant life, a life that is beyond any anything that we could uh, imagine or expect. Now, Father, as we study, continue to study the evidences of the resurrection and the appearances of our Lord after the resurrection, we pray that you will help us to understand these things and to apply them to our thinking, our understanding of your word and of the gospel and of the reality of the faith we believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are in John chapter 20. It seems that John in his gospel says more about what transpired between the resurrection and the ascension that the, than the other gospels. And though for those who are listening to this out of order, we are studying in Matthew in this period of time from the Garden of Gethsemane until the ascension of Christ, the final commission which he gives to the disciples. We are putting all of the Gospels together to get a full picture of that last period in the life of Christ. So we are in Matthew, I mean, excuse me, John chapter 20, verse 24 this morning. And we are looking at, again, resurrection evidence. And here I'm going to be talking about empiricism, reason, and revelation. Empiricism, reason, and revelation. This is a particularly significant passage because of one thing that Jesus says to Thomas. And we'll get there when we get down to verse 29. But first we have to understand some things that are going on in this particular passage. In this passage, we have seen in the previous appearance of our Lord one week earlier on the day of the resurrection, he appears later that evening to his disciples, and there are only ten present. Thomas is missing. 
And at that point, the ten disciples, I think Peter had already believed, uh, Peter had believed and John had believed, but the others, not so much. And it's at that time when Jesus appears to them that they believed in the resurrection. But one disciple was missing, and that's Thomas. And what we read in this episode is that afterward, when the disciples uh, saw Thomas, they told him that they had seen the Lord and that he was alive and that he was resurrected and Thomas didn't believe them. And he said, unless I can put my my fingers in the nail prints and I can touch the wound at his side and the wounds in his feet, I'm not going to believe. And that raises the evidence of the question of the role of evidence in faith. In the scriptures, perhaps uh, there is an, excuse me, in the scriptures it is clear that the faith that we have is not a faith that is in spite of evidence or a faith that is contrary to reason or to uh, our everyday experience. It is quite different. But within the history of Christianity, there are those who have somehow, some ways, demeaned the role of evidence and the role of reason. This usually shows up those who are mystical, but it shows up in some others as well. Some of you may have been taught that you weren't really to ask questions, that that wasn't uh, something that you do. You just believe. That's all you need to do. It's just sort of this leap of faith, and you'll hear that language. I've heard people who ought to know better use that language, but that's not good language. We do not, as Christians, have a leap of faith. That terminology comes out of a Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher of the late 19th century, who didn't believe there was evidence of Christianity, and so you had to believe it because it ought to be true, but there's no real reason or or evidence for it, so therefore you just took this irrational leap of faith. And for many in human viewpoint circles, atheists, philosophers, their definition of faith is believing that which is irrational believing that for which there is no evidence. And that is how they approach faith. But that is not what the Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that biblical faith is not divorced from historical evidence or rational observation. A couple of things, three things I want to point out in this introduction is is that as skeptics state that faith is to be irrational, we must understand that every system of knowledge is ultimately based on a belief system. Whether it is a religion such as Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, whatever, they would grant that, that religion is based on faith, but science is based on faith. And all forms of rationalism and idealism are also based on faith. Here is a chart that I have used many, many years, many, many times, and you have looked at, that breaks down the four basic ways in which we, our philosophers, think about how we know what we know. What is the basis for our knowledge? If you say, I know something is true, 
on what basis do you claim that that is true? Do you base it on your experience? Do you base it on reason? Do you base it on just uh, mysticism, some sort of inner intuitive insight? Or do you base it on revelation, that which ultimately comes from God? Rationalism is the first system in the chart. In rationalism, the idea is we are, we have certain innate ideas. Whether you're talking about the ancient Greek philosopher of Plato or you're talking about the Enlightenment philosopher of Descartes, in rationalism begins in the mind. And the argument is that based on first principles that are known by the mind, we can, on the basis of logic, the basis of reason, argue to truth. We can argue to the existence of God. We can argue to the existence of other beings. But the problem with rationalism ultimately is is it fails and falls into the trap of what is called solipsism, which is similar to the word alone, soul. You don't get real S-O-L-E, not S-O-U-L, that you don't really get outside of your head to the existence of other things. But when you remove all of the complexities and the arguments of rationalism, ultimately there is a faith in the ability of the human mind to reach eternal truths apart from any form of revelation. In empiricism, the idea is that, that the mind is an empty slate, and so we don't start with any innate ideas, but that everything that comes into the mind comes via various uh, forms of input, uh, sensory data, what we see, what we taste, what we smell, what we touch. And as that comes into the soul, then through that experience, then we formulate our understanding of the world around us, and that is called empiricism. It is based also on logic and reason. But ultimately, like rationalism, it too is based on faith in human ability. It's faith in the, it's based on the idea that I can come to an understanding on the basis of my empiricism, my experience, I can extrapolate and come to understand eternal realities and eternal truths that are totally beyond the observational experience of any human being in time or space. Mysticism comes into play historically as a result of the failures of both rationalism and empiricism in human history because they they eventually break down. It's recognized they just don't get there. And so since we as human beings seem to have embedded within our souls a sense of eternity that's indicated by the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, that we have eternity in our hearts. And so because of that, because of what uh, Paul indicates in Romans chapter 2, there is, a, a, and in Paul, Romans chapter 1, 18 and following, we know God exists because the evidence is both external and God has made it evident within us so that every human being knows God exists. And therefore, we can't truly live as if there is no God and there is no meaning. And if reason and empiricism can't get us there, then we just get there through a leap of faith. That's mysticism. That was part of the foundation of what developed into existentialism. Uh, 
Mysticism, too, is based on faith. It's based on faith in human ability. So it's not faith versus reason. It's not faith versus the scientific method. It's not faith versus experience. It is faith in the wrong thing versus faith in the right thing. It's faith in limited, finite human reasoning abilities, faith in limited, finite human ability to interpret experience versus the faith in the revelation of the eternal, omnipotent creator God of the universe. And so faith is always based on the logic and reason that God put into the universe. But the faith precedes the, the, the rationalism and the empiricism, not the other way around. That's the first point in the introduction. The second point in the introduction is that in Christianity, faith, therefore, is based on the right use of reason and the right use of experience. We can go back to the Garden of Eden, and we see that God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he told Adam to name all of the creatures. And they go through this process of categorization and classification and naming all of the animals. And, and that's before Eve is created. And, and already Adam is beginning to note that all of the animals that came into his purview were in pairs. And there's not a pair for him. There's not a, any, any creature comparable to him. And then... As God has brought him to that awareness, then God is going to create a helper that is comparable to him. And so God causes a deep sleep to fall on him, and from his side, he, from his rib, he creates uh, the woman. And then God gives him some information that he couldn't get from the experience of identifying and classifying everything. And God says, of all the trees in the garden, it's good to eat. You can eat from everything, but you can't eat from that one tree over there because if you do, you'll die spiritually. In other words, he could learn a lot from empiricism. He could learn a lot from rationalism, but he couldn't learn how to really ultimately identify and categorize all the data correctly until he had that one piece of information from Revelation, and that is that one tree, if you eat from it, you'll die. You'll die spiritually. That was it. So Revelation is necessary. We can come up with great theories, great ideas. They may even be 98% correct, but it's that 2% that's wrong that flaws the formulas. You've got to know something that is only available through revelation. And so to understand revelation, because revelation is verbal, revelation communicates, you have to use reason and experience in order to interpret those verbal statements. A third thing we observe is that when it comes to Christianity, the Bible reveals to us who God is as the infinite eternal, incomprehensible creator God of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. It tells us that man's problem is one of disobedience and rebellion against God, which brought spiritual death to man, brought sin and corruption into all of the universe, and left man without hope and without any way to save himself. 
it also tells us the great story of God's salvation, that God provided a Savior who could solve the sin problem, who could pay the penalty for sin and provide a way for us to have eternal life. That when that happened, it was preceded by promises and prophecies that could be understood, that could be clocked and measured so that people like Hannah and Simeon in Luke chapter 2 are waiting at the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be presented to God. They were ready because they understood revelation, not because they had some sort of special additional insight, other than they were told that they would, God would not take them home until they saw the Messiah. But they knew the Messiah was close because they understood the Old Testament. They understood it logically, rationally, exegetically, but that reason was subordinate to faith. When it comes to the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, the claims of Jesus to be God, and ultimately the claims of the resurrection, these run counter to autonomous or independent reason and experience. We've never seen anybody else that was born without uh, the normal sexual procreative forms of, of conception. We've never seen anyone raise someone from the dead. You've never seen anyone directly without benefit of the medical complex heal someone with leprosy or give sight to the blind. We've never seen anyone who's been raised from the dead who was actually truly dead for three days and then came forth from the tomb. We've never seen that. When these things happen in Scripture, there's always corroborating evidence that's given. God doesn't operate in a mystical vacuum. When you go back into the Old Testament, as I've taught many, many times, and God speaks to somebody and gives them direction, it is not without confirmatory evidence. That's why there's guidelines given in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 so that if someone comes along and claims that they are a messenger of the Lord and says this is what God says, you can evaluate that message through the use of uh, reason and comparison with other messages to see if that is a true claim or not. Scripture is very clear. We are to think. The idea of the world out there and the skeptics out there is that Christians put their brain into neutral on Sunday morning. And the sad thing is there's a lot of examples of that, which is quite an embarrassment to the cross and to Christianity, because there are too many Christians who just put their brain into neutral. But that is not the biblical way, as we're going to see in this particular, in this particular passage. So, as we look at the evidence for the resurrection, we have seen that Jesus prophesied this many times. The fact is that if he had not risen from the dead, he would have been demonstrated to have been a false prophet. The disciples, were told, did not really understand what he meant. Neither did they believe it. In fact, throughout all four accounts, as we've studied over the past several weeks in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we've discovered is the disciples did not readily accept the resurrection. They didn't hear the tomb is empty and think, oh, he did it. 
He rose from the dead. When they heard that the tomb was empty, and somebody stole his body. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They weren't looking for a resurrected Savior. They stayed in Jerusalem instead of going to uh, Galilee. If they had believed there was going to be a resurrection, when Jesus said, after I'm crucified, go to Galilee and I'll meet you there, they would have gone to Galilee to meet him there. This was a great example that they lacked any faith whatsoever in the resurrection. And when others came with reports that they had seen the risen Lord, they didn't believe them either. They found it extremely difficult. All but possibly Peter and John did not believe in a resurrection until Jesus stood in front of them in a physical resurrected body. So let's look at what happens in terms of what the Bible teaches about the importance of proof and evidence. First place to go is in Luke. We're going to go look at two things that Luke said in Luke 1 and Acts 1. In Luke chapter 1, he starts off telling us who he's writing the gospel account for and why he's writing it. And in Luke chapter 1, he starts off, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things accomplished among us. What does that tell you? That there have been others before him, and I would argue that it's probably certainly Matthew and probably Mark, He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. What he points out there is that what he is basing his gospel on is eyewitness accounts. He's not basing it on oral tradition. He's not basing it on hearsay. He is not basing it on... Uh, some other form. He has talked to eyewitnesses. Probably when Paul was in, in prison for two years there at Caesarea by the sea, Luke took advantage of that opportunity and he interviewed Mary, he interviewed other family members, he interviewed early church members, he interviewed the other disciples that were still around, and other eyewitnesses of the 500 that had observed uh, and seen and heard the resurrected Lord. And he wrote down these accounts. He talked to those uh, for whom miracles had been performed. He talked to those who had been part of the 5,000 and the 4,000 that Jesus had fed. He talked to those perhaps who had had demons cast out of them. He got those eyewitness records, reports and he recorded them accurately. In verse 3 he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything uh, carefully, from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So what we learn about Theophilus is he's probably a believer already. He's been taught the gospel. He's been taught these things about Christ. But Luke is writing to fill in the blanks and give him the details. When he Luke represents this as eyewitness reports. The language he uses is language that indicates that he, it was a thorough, uh, he, he followed through, that's the accurate, actually the literal meaning of the word is he followed through accurately or with precision. That's the idea he and investigated everything carefully. He followed through accurately or with precision. And then he reported it sequentially. In the introduction to 
Matthew, I pointed out that Luke is the only account that is chronological based on on this particular verse. So he is presenting the life of Christ to Theophilus in a on, on a the basis of something that is well researched and grounded on eyewitness reports. And so he doesn't expect Theophilus to believe in a vacuum, to just believe because he's heard stories, but he's going to give him well-researched and grounded information based on multiple eyewitness reports. Now, the second passage we want to go to is in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1. And what we see in Acts 1 as well as in as well as in Luke 1, is that there's uh, no concept in these passages of some form of relativism. It's not, he doesn't use words like probably or maybe or it is likely that. He presents it accurately. This is exactly what happened. There's no relativism here at all. It presents an absolute understanding of history, the facts have been sought out and they have been understood and evaluated and so that the person who reads this is going to understand that this is an accurate report. They are expected to engage their intellect and not just believe in a vacuum because it seems like a good story. In Acts 1, we see that Acts is Luke's second account in Acts 1.1, 1, 1, he says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke goes from the uh, birth until the ascension. He'll pick up with the ascension again with a little review in Acts chapter 1. And then in verse 3, he says, To these, that is, to his apostles, that would be the eleven that are left after uh, Judas, to these he also presented himself alive. After his suffering, that is, after the cross, by many convincing proofs. And the word here in the Greek is tekmerion, which indicates um, it's a, a legal term. It is to present something with certainty. It has the idea of evidence, proof, uh, infallible evidence, undeniable evidence. He gave them empirical evidence. And we've seen this. He shows up and they can see the nail prints in his hands, his feet, his side. He shows this to Thomas. Thomas puts his, looks at him. I don't think Thomas actually touched him, but Thomas looked at him. His presence was enough. It was self-evidential authority, and so Luke summarizes this with many convincing proofs. Not just once. It didn't just happen on the day of the resurrection. It happened again and again and again. He says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. So for the next 40 days before between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus is showing up and he's talking to the disciples almost every day and teaching them all about the church age and providing for them. So that's our second passage. Our third passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Two parts of 1 Corinthians 15 are important for us. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing some years later to the church at Corinth, which is questioning the reality of the resurrection. Maybe he just appeared as a ghost. Maybe they just thought he appeared. Maybe it was part of his imagination. That's what the modern skeptic wants to say, is they were so religiously minded that they just had this this conjured up vision this was their imagination it was it it was like a sort of group hypnosis and they all believed this but that doesn't explain any of the evidence we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 4 through 8 of the appearances that some of these are not mentioned in the gospel We're told that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, Cephas, then to the twelve, notice he calls them the twelve even though there's only eleven, after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. This is his brother James, half-brother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared to him. He was not a believer until this appearance. And then to all of the apostles. And then Paul says, And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Well, let me ask you a question about when he uses this word appeared. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500. Verse 7, he appeared to James. Verse 8, he appeared to me. Let's go back one. He appeared to Cephas. Okay, so he uses the same word appear. Now, how was it that he appeared to, to, to Peter? Was it a ghost? Was it imagination? Was it in Peter's head? No. Physical, bodily, resurrection. Okay, how did he appear to the 500? physical bodily resurrection. How did he appear to James? Physical bodily resurrection. It's not something they saw in their head. How did he appear to the apostles? We've just seen it. He he appears in the room. They see him. It's a physical manifestation of his resurrection body. He offers to have them touch him. He eats. He shows that this is physical bodily. And then in verse 8, Paul says he appeared to him also. Now, what I don't understand, and it does bother me, and I am concerned about this, is why is it that so many, even evangelicals, like this recent movie on Paul the Apostle, when it comes to Paul appearing to Peter, they make it psychological. It's in his head. They don't. You don't see that Paul sees the same thing that Peter and the 500 and James and the other apostles saw. He just sees something psychological in his head. And the sad thing is, is when you don't have Paul seeing the physical bodily resurrected Jesus, you are, in essence, providing something that, instead of supporting the resurrection, denies the resurrection. And this is sad. And you see it in almost every Let me put it this way. I have never seen a film representation where they did it biblically. And that bothers me. Because this is the foundation of Peter, I mean, of Paul's whole argument here. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that this is not a subjective, psychological, mystical, religious experience, but that, in fact, he bases his apostleship on this, that Jesus appeared to him the same way he did to the other apostles and commissioned him to be an apostle in the same way he commissioned the other apostles. The foundation for Christianity is based on that which is historical verifiable. Now, it's true that when he appeared to Paul, those who were with him just saw a bright light. But Paul saw the physical bodily resurrection, resurrected Jesus. And when Jesus talked to Paul, those who were there couldn't discern the words that Jesus said, but they heard the sound of his voice. They heard he was saying something, but they couldn't hear exactly what it was they made. That doesn't mean it's subjective. It means it's objective because they did hear the voice. They just couldn't discern what the voice said. So as we look at at those passages, we realize that, that Paul is saying that the resurrection is something that was real and something that was verifiable and something that had uh, historic evidence behind it. You're not p- putting your brain into neutral to believe in the resurrection. He goes on to say in the next few verses that had Christ, and he says, and if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is vain or empty or worthless, meaningless. Your faith is also in vain. That's the key passage there because he's saying if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead physically and bodily, then all of Christianity collapses. There is no truth. There is no eternal Jesus. There's no victory over death. Jesus didn't pay for sins. The whole of Christianity stands or falls with a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. He goes on to say that if he wasn't raised from the dead, then we are found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If, in fact the dead are not raised. So basically what he's saying is we'd be false witnesses and we'd be witnessing against God if he didn't really raise Christ. And then he says further, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. See, if you just believe 100% there's no such thing, nobody could ever be raised from the dead, then there's no resurrection of individual believers and there's no resurrection of Christ. And if Christ wasn't raised... Your faith is worthless. Historic, verifiable evidence of his resurrection is provided in the Gospels. And furthermore, we read in Second Peter chapter 1, although here Peter is talking about the, what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, his point is the same, that we don't put our brains in neutral. There is historic, verifiable, empirical evidence of the truth of Christianity. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw his glory there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's fully aware of the fact that what the critics were saying then, as they say now, is this is just something somebody made up. It's a myth. You're just, uh, you're just fooling everybody with your, with your story. But these are men who gave their life for the resurrection. John is the only one of the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles, who lived to die of natural old age. All of the rest died for the claim 
that Jesus rose from the dead. And that just isn't going to happen. People are not going to give their life for a lie. So Peter goes on to say, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, referring to God, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's got evidence. He heard the Father's voice. That's what he says in verse 18. We ourselves heard this utterance. It's empirical. We were witnesses. There's more than what's not one. There were three of us there. So it is confirmed not just by two witnesses according to the law, but by three witnesses. So the disciples did not expect people to believe apart from critical thinking. After all, they didn't believe it at first. They were unbelieving. They had to be convinced through empirical evidence. First John 1 1, John states it this way. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, em- empirical data, what we have seen with our eyes, empirical data, what we beheld and our hands touched. So seeing, hearing, touching concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, he repeats it again in case you just missed the importance of it the first time. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, there is no fellowship with God. There is no eternal life unless our report of this empirical evidence is absolutely true. Now, what we see and have seen so far in our study of the post-resurrection appearances is that there have been five, and we're at the sixth one now. There's the appearance to Mary, the appearance to the other women, uh, the appearance to the two on the road to Emmaus, the appearance to Peter in private, the appearance to the ten, which we studied last time in John 20, 19 to 25, and now the appearance to the ten plus Thomas in John 20, 26 to 31. So now we will take a look at what happens in these passages. That should be John twenty twenty four to 31. Now, this is a week later. This is the next Sunday. Now, Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with him when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, You guys are fools. Well, in essence, that's reading between the the lines here. He's not believing them. He's been hanging with these guys for the last three years, and he doesn't believe them at all. He is as incredulous as they were. This is not the presentation of gullible disciples who have parked their brains in neutral. He said, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails... And put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, I've got to have hard evidence. I've got to be able to actually see and touch the nail prints and the wound in his side. Verse 26 says, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. 
Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And I pointed out last time that as in the previous episode when it says the door was shut, the Greek verb there probably means it was locked. They were afraid of the Jews. They don't want anybody coming in. And Jesus appears through locked doors, and he's in their presence. He says the same thing to them. In Hebrew, it's uh, Shalom Alechem. And he goes to Thomas. He doesn't say, well, look at me. He says, okay, Thomas, you wanted to put your finger into the wounds on my hands and my feet and my side. Here it is. Touch me. You can do that. And then he says to him, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Now, the problem that we run into here in modern evangelical Christianity are there are people who say that if you have, if your faith is based on miracles, if it's based on signs, then that may not be genuine saving faith. John MacArthur has said that because that's essential to being able to come up with the heretical doctrine of lordship salvation because what he wants to reject is the fact that in John chapter 2, Jesus did many miracles and many believed in him, pistuo ace, the language that is used all through John to indicate belief in Jesus. And then it says, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. So MacArthur wants to say, see, they, didn't, they believed in Jesus, but it wasn't saving faith because Jesus didn't trust himself to them. See, he's got to have, he, he wants to reject the idea that somebody can believe the gospel, trust in Jesus, and then go the rest of their life with no spiritual growth, and they're not saved. That's not the gospel. That's heresy. That's lordship salvation. And he wants to base it on that, and so the only way he can get around it is to minimize what happened by saying, see, the faith of those people in John 2 isn't real faith because it's just based on signs. But what we've seen all through John chapter 20 is that the disciples see the resurrected Lord and they believe. And now we have uh, Thomas who's going to believe as a result. And at the conclusion of this section, in John 20 verse 30, John says, And truly Jesus did many other signs, that's a miracle, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but there are written it. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What John is saying is, I'm telling you, there are these eight signs in the Gospel of John, and that on that basis, that evidence, you can believe and you'll have eternal life. That's not what the Lordship crowd says. So, we read in John 20, 26, 27, as I just read, that Jesus says, put your hand here. Now, there's nothing wrong with believing without this kind of direct empirical evidence. But see, today, we don't have that direct empirical evidence. You can't go put your hands in the nail print and the side, the wound in Jesus' side. You believe because of revelation, Revelation is the light of God, and Psalm 36, 9 says, In your light we see light. That's the point in that opening chart I gave you, is the way we understand truth is to presuppose the truth of revelation. In the light of God's word, 
then and only then can we properly interpret the data that we see in front of us. And so we're reminded of these these signs in John. There's eight signs. Most people that you hear teach, in fact, when I first taught John, I said there were seven signs. The big sign is the eighth sign. That's the resurrection. There are seven other signs. He turned the water into wine in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. He healed the nobleman's son from a distance in chapter 4, 46 to 54. He healed the man at Bethesda, the cripple of Bethesda, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. He fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. He walked on water in chapter 6, 15 through 21. He healed the man born blind in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. He raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And now the resurrection of Christ is the eighth and final sign. Well, Thomas didn't need to touch the nail prints in his hands or the wound in his side. He immediately recognized that Jesus was indeed alive. He was there in flesh and bone. He was resurrected, and he said, My Lord and my God. In verse 29, Jesus then replies to him in most significant verse. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. He doesn't say it's fake belief or an inadequate belief. He uses the same language all the way through John, just believe in him. He says, because of this, you've believed. He doesn't say you aren't blessed, but he does say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He doesn't pronounce a negative judgment on Thomas, but he says, for those who believe on the basis of revelation... And the evidence that's presented in Revelation, second-hand evidence, not direct empirical evidence, but indirect empirical evidence because it's on the basis of what's written and on the basis of their report, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Faith for us is that what the Scripture says is more real than our unaided reason and unaided experience will tell us, that The stability of God is more real to us than the instability of our circumstances. The certainty of God's promise is more real than the vagaries of our life. That God's care for us is more real to us than the the feelings that we have of our own ineptitude and inadequacy. When we come to the end of what the Scripture teaches about God and his relationship to man, God wants to be known by human beings. He gives evidence of that, Romans 1, 18 to 21, that the heavens uh, represent God's uh, invisible attributes and communicate that so it is evident to them. And then Paul goes on to say, for God made it evident within them. But the issue is human volition. They have to decide, do I want to know God or not? The most important decision, of course, as you know, is the cross, is to trust in Christ as Savior. But after that, it's a day-by-day decision. Are we going to continue to want to know God? In closing, I want to remind you of 1 Chronicles 28.9, profound statement by King David on his deathbed just about, and he is... 
giving direct guidance to his son Solomon. It applies to every one of us. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him. That is the message for in every message for the believer is to continue to know God and to serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. See, you don't put your mind in neutral. It's based on the use of your intellect with a whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the evidence of Scripture that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is your eternal son, second person of the Trinity, who entered into human history to die on the cross for our sins, to pay that penalty that we might have eternal life. And we pray that anyone listening to this message, anyone here today who's never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so based on the evidence of Scripture. And Father, we pray that for us as believers, that we would be mindful of what uh, David said to Solomon, that we are to seek you with a whole heart, with our minds, and that be mindful of the warning that in negative volition you may turn us over to divine discipline and we may be forsaken by you in time. But Father, we pray that we would continue to pursue you, wanting to know you and wanting to apply your word, that we may experience that full abundant life that Jesus promised for us, that we might have life and life abundantly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.